Today's reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard a sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, and before the people of Israel. I will show him how he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptised. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened 
and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, a very good morning to you. It's great to have you join us this morning. And we're going to think more about Acts chapter 9. Um, please do keep the passage open and you will see on the back of our service sheets for this morning, there's uh, an outline for where I'm hoping to go. But as we begin, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we praise you that the Lord Jesus has promised to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. And we pray, Father, as we reflect now on his work, that you would give us great confidence as a church in that work. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever come across before and after pictures. You know how it is when companies want to sell their latest weight loss product or plastic surgery or some exercise regime, they give you two pictures of the same person. And one of the pictures is the before shot. It's normally black and white. It's a bit grainy. The person's looking pretty unhappy. But then, of course, they give you a nice color shot, high definition, and the person's looking completely ripped and very pleased with themselves. And the point is that we, as consumers, ask the question, What's made the difference? How's that person gone from that shot to this shot? And if they've done it, well then can I do it as well? And where do I sign up? There's something of that in our passage this morning. There is a before and an after. The before, it comes uh, in verse 1 of chapter 9. We read that Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. See, we start with the church in a very dark place. The disciples are under threat by a religious zealot. And in chapter 8, we read that Paul has ravaged the church. And so, that's the before shot. But look at verse 31. Here's the after shot. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. This is a complete contrast, isn't it? The church is at peace. It is growing. It's living not in fear of Saul, but in the fear of the Lord. And it causes us to ask the question, what has made the difference? How's the church gone from this very marginalized, under-threat community to an encouraged, growing, and strengthened group of people. And that, I would argue, is a question actually we ask ourselves a lot today. Now, we aren't, wouldn't say that we're quite in the same place as the early church was. Uh, we're not quite persecuted in the same way. But if we're honest with ourselves, we do live in a culture, don't we, where the church can feel very weak, discouraged and like it's shrinking and we long for the church to be in the world of verse 31 encouraged built up and growing and so we ask ourselves the question how do we get the church there Uh, a couple of weeks ago I spent almost the whole week going to different church um, conferences Um, July is the time of year where uh, 
vicars get together and they have these big conferences. And the great thing about them being all online is that you can go to multiple ones in the week. And it was very interesting because every conference I was at was all about this question. How does the church grow? How do we grow into the future? And all of them had different answers. But Luke shows us the answer in this passage, how it is the church goes from the before to the after. And I'm absolutely convinced that if we grasp the truths in this passage for ourselves, we will be confident in our nation and at St. Mary's as we join in that work of seeking to build the church. So, how do we do it? What's the big secret? Well, we don't. But Jesus does. See, in this passage, we see Jesus take an action that changes the destiny of the church. It is probably the most famous conversion story there is, isn't it? It is um, even in our popular culture. We talk about a Damascus Road experience, speaking about someone who's changed their mind. But where this conversion comes in Acts is hugely important. See, remember, Luke's whole purpose through this book is to give you and me confidence. Uh, we saw back in chapter eight, uh, chapter one, rather, that Jesus has only just began to do his works, implying that Jesus now continues to build his church. And it's like Jesus gives the church a shot in the arm at this point, because what happens to Saul, or as we know him, Paul, his uh, Roman name, uh, changes the church's destiny. The church, after this point, now goes out to the world and builds up massively. So what is it that Jesus does? What's the big secret? Well, we see two things. We see that Jesus turns the worst of sinners and he uses the worst of sinners to turn others. See, whoever we are this morning... Uh, we've got to admit that this is an absolutely dramatic conversion, isn't it? It's a dramatic in its circumstances. You get the heavenly light show, the voice, Saul falls to the floor, he's temporarily blinded, temporarily blinded. It's dramatic in its implications. It not only changes the church, but in some ways it changes the world and history as we know it. But Luke, most of all, draws our attention to the dramatic change that has taken place in one man's life. See, Luke reminds us of Saul's CV. Look at verse 1 again. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if, any, if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. I mean, by all accounts, Paul is going above and beyond in his hatred of the church at this point. Uh, he's not the only one to persecute the church, of course, but he is the only one to take that persecution way outside of Jerusalem. See, Damascus was 135 miles from Jerusalem. I look this up, that happens to be the same distance between Basingstoke and Derby. So just imagine walking to Derby, and Derby's almost the north, isn't it? It's four or five days' journey. And by all accounts, Paul's not asked to do this work, but he wants to do it. You can imagine, can't you, this young, 
zealous, keen, religiously devoted man, begging the high priest for permission, just let me go to Damascus to get these guys. And the high priest thinking to himself, well, he's a bit keen, but we'll let him do it. And of course, we saw in chapter 8, didn't we, how Saul held the coats while he watched Stephen pummeled to death. And he says later on, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I mean, Saul is as bad as they come. If you were to draw up a list of crimes in the Bible and order them according to severity, I mean, killing Christians is up there at the top. This man makes it his life's mission to de-evangelize the world, to oppose the church, and as we're going to see, oppose Jesus. But then, famously, we know that Jesus meets him on the road. He stops him in his tracks, quite literally, Look at verse 4. He fell, that's Saul, to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. See, that one moment, that one encounter changes Saul forever. In fact, I love verse 8. There's a little wordplay in verse 8. It's easy to miss. But it literally reads that his eyes were opened, seeing nothing. And the point is, Luke is saying, look, he's lost his physical sight, but he can see better than he's ever seen before. And you can see, can't you, the dramatic change in Ananias' words. I mean, Ananias, you've got to feel sorry for him. He's got one of the hardest callings in the church. He's, He's told to go to Saul the equivalent of kind of handing yourself into the police. But look at what he says, verse 17. Then Ananias went into the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, that one word says it all. Brother the arch-persecutor of the church, is welcomed in as a member of God's family. If we're in any doubt this morning about what makes a Christian, I mean, this is the place to go, isn't it? Because if we think that being a Christian is about being good or leaning on our own performance or somehow thinking God's overly impressed with us if we do well, well, actually, we've got to say that Paul isn't a Christian. See, Paul goes on, in fact, to use this whole event to prove that Jesus saves sinners. He says so in uh, 1 Timothy uh, 1.16. And he makes the point that he was shown mercy, he writes, so that Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to others. See, Paul was saying, look, he, he chose me, the arch-persecutor, the worst of the worst, to show that Jesus can have mercy to anyone. I remember shortly after I became a Christian, I got myself into a bit of a situation um, where um, I felt um, that I'd uh, messed up big time. Uh, I went out with a friend, uh, and uh, we met uh, some new people, and we got to to chat into them. And these guys were a bit older, they're a bit more cool, they're a bit more hipster. And I remember just feeling that I was in my early 20s, I kind of wanted to impress them. And to cut a long story short, I got in a conversation where 
one of the guys asked me whether I was a Christian. And I remember, before I could even think about it, just saying no. And it hit me at that point. Rob, what have you done? You've fallen at the first hurdle. You say you're a Christian, but look at your performance. And of course, Satan would use that against me. But it was so helpful to come to Paul and to think, well, Jesus saved a man like this, and so he can save a man like me. And it may be that some of us just need to be reminded that of this morning. Maybe we've messed up in a big way, and we just feel God would not welcome us. But Paul shows us that Jesus does not welcome us on our own merits, but on his mercy. Now, to be a Christian isn't to have a dramatic turn like Saul does. I mean, it's hard to manufacture, isn't it? And lots of us kind of remember, um, have grown up always remembering that Jesus was there and part of our lives. And some of us will have um, encountered the Christian faith a bit like we encounter the sunrise, that it's just gradually risen and gradually been part of our lives. There isn't this kind of dramatic turn. But what Jesus does with Saul, he does actually do with every Christian, whatever our experience, whether we've grown up and always followed Jesus, whether we've gradually come to a realization, whether we've said a prayer on camp, or whether we've come to a dramatic change, Jesus has to do this work with every single one of his people. Accept them despite their sin, open their eyes, and welcome them into his family. Now remember, remember what Luke is doing with this. He's given us confidence, isn't he? that the church can go from that before picture to the after picture. So the question is, of this passage, how does he give us confidence to do that? Well, the answer is that if Jesus can do this work with this man, he can do it with anyone. See, one of the big reasons I think we often hold off sharing the gospel with people around us is because we prejudge how they're going to respond. We look at them and we think, no, no way, they're they're too far gone. And so we don't bother sharing uh, the good news of Jesus with them. Now, of course, if it was just us sharing the gospel, we'd be absolutely right. No one would turn. But we forget that Jesus is active now in his church, turning the worst of sinners, people like Saul, to recognize him, to see him, and to be changed You may say to me, well, yeah, but you've not met my colleague. I mean, she's got all the arguments, and she is not interested. Or you've not met my friend. His lifestyle is just so different to what you would expect. But Luke would say, I think, well, look at Saul. Is your friend any more sinful than he is? Is your colleague any more anti than Saul was? And Jesus, yeah, we see that Jesus changes him. Now, as I've been looking at this passage, I've been thinking about my own conversion at university, and I I think, I've often thought to myself, why did people bother sharing the gospel with me? I remember a few years after, I met an old school friend uh, on the commute, and I I explained to him that I'd become a Christian, and he was just absolutely staggered. He said, Rob, you're the least likely of people to have become a Christian. And um, I won't go into detail why he said that, but I I think I know what he was getting at. I was pretty proud, I was pretty argumentative, and I was pretty difficult. It's hard to imagine, I know. But but people persisted with me. 
And I don't mean that they kind of strong arm me or force me into making a confession. They just very gently presented Jesus to me and presented a different life. And God used their witness to me to change me. And do you know what? I thank God that people persisted and never prejudged me before sharing the gospel with me. Maybe we say to ourselves, no way. The church has um, got too much of a task on its hands. The, the culture is too different. But Luke would say to us, well, remember what Jesus does. He turns the worst of sinners, people like Saul, to know him and to his purposes. Now, it's worth saying that whilst what happens to Saul here is, in some sense, a story of every Christian, it is also a very untypical conversion. Because what Jesus does with Saul here, he doesn't do with anyone else. See, the way Luke records uh, this conversion is very carefully done, because Luke wants us to see that only Saul saw Jesus. See, take a look at verse 7, for example. Uh, We read that the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Or verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. We'll take verse 27. Uh, We read that Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord. So you see the point, don't you? Luke is showing us very carefully that uh, others heard it, but only Saul saw the risen Jesus. Now, why is that important? Well, because Luke is showing us that Paul, or Saul, has the authority of an apostle. Uh, Remember, we said in chapter 1 that to be an apostle, you have to have two things on your CV. Uh, First of all, you need to witness the resurrection. And secondly, you need to have been commissioned by Jesus. And Luke here is showing us that both those things have taken place for Paul. See, first of all, he's seen the risen Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord Jesus Christ? But secondly, he's commissioned by Jesus. Have a look at verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Do you see what he says? He is my chosen instrument. Now, you might say to yourself, why even care whether Paul is an apostle at all? Well, the answer is, it's because the apostles are the way Jesus will grow his church. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 8, you can turn there with me uh, if you like, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to the apostles, the 12, or the 11 at this point, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, that wasn't a general promise to every Christian. It was to the 11, soon to be 12, who will then take the gospel out to the ends of the earth. And it's very similar, isn't it, in chapter 9, verse 15, where Jesus says, he is my chosen instrument to take my name out to Gentiles, to kings, and to Israel. And straight off the bat, we see the Apostle Paul 
do that work. Uh, immediately after he's chosen, we read in verse 20 that he's out preaching in Damascus. And later on, we read, verse 28, that he's preaching in Jerusalem. Now, if that's all very confusing, here's the point to come back in. The headline here is that Jesus has chosen to grow his church through the ministry of Saul. Let me give you an example just to help us understand that. I've um, got to confess that um, over the last few years, I've had a bit of a difficult relationship. I've had a difficult relationship with my garden lawn. Uh, when I moved into my house, it was a complete mess. Thank you, by the way, for mowing the lawn. Uh, but uh, soon after I moved in, it was a, pretty, uh, it was a, it was a bit of a mess. Uh, there was more weeds than grass. There was more brown patches than green. And I kid you not, when I came back off holiday once, there were mushrooms growing all over the garden. I don't know what had happened. And um, it would be so embarrassing that some of my neighbors would start to notice. And they wouldn't kind of overtly correct me on it, but they would just ask me if I needed any help with the lawn. And I knew what they were getting at. But then I discovered a secret. Lawn fertilizer. And for the last two years, I've spread this um, stuff all over my lawn. And honestly, now it's not far off Wimbledon or Wembley. In fact, I should have brought a before and after picture just to show you and sell you the product. But the point is that fertilizer has made all the difference. That one ingredient has changed my garden lawn from a weak and worthless um, excuse for grass to a green and pleasant land. And it's very similar here. This event where Jesus commissions Paul, and as he goes out proclaiming the gospel, well, that changes the church from its before picture to its after picture. Now, I know some of us are asking the question, well, that's then, what about now? We, I mean, it'd be great, wouldn't it, if we could wheel out uh, Saul to talk about this. But we have got his writings See, here Luke is showing us what we have in the New Testament. See, we don't just have the opinions of some religious teacher, some religious thoughts of a man. We have the Jesus-commissioned means of reaching the ends of the earth. And actually, as you look back on church history, there are just many examples of that taking place. I uh, I, I've got many that I could mention, but just to highlight too, um, Martin Luther, the great reformer from 500 years ago, do you know what it was that changed him? It was reading the book of Romans. And in fact, it was reading Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the words of Paul, uh, the guy we meet in Acts 9. And he saw, this is Luther, that righteousness, our right standing with God, doesn't come from inside of us and our performance but it is completely a gift given to us. And he saw that, and when he saw that for the first time, he wrote this, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. Or take John Wesley, uh, the great uh, minister and preacher uh, who had a huge impact a couple of centuries ago. And guess, again, what changed him? Well, it was the book of Romans. He went to a, an evening church service. The minister was speaking uh, on the book of Romans. And here's what he says. While the minister was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. 
I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Do you see the point? It's not only that this man, Saul, is changed, but he's changed so that he might change others. See, through what Jesus does to him, and through his writing, Jesus then goes on to do with others. Now, it doesn't always have to be the book of Romans. I know both my examples are from Romans, a lot are. And it doesn't always have to be the Apostle Paul. There are other apostles. But, but it does show us that what we have in the Bible is the very means that Jesus uses to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to build up the church, to change it into that after picture. Now, it doesn't mean that we just go out into the streets and start reading Paul's words and everyone will be magically zapped. I mean, that's magic. That's not evangelism. But it does mean that as we know this word, and as we know what it says, and as we share that with others, that Jesus will take people, despite their sin, take the scales off their eyes, cause them to be born again, cause their hearts to be strangely warmed. Now, I wonder, does our view of Scripture match up with what Luke says here? It's very easy, isn't it, to treat the Bible as something we dip into to kind of build us up. But Luke is showing us that what we have is a gift from Jesus and the very toolkit we use to take the gospel out to the people around us. See, as we conclude, we all want, don't we, the church to move from that before picture to the after picture. And Luke shows us how that change has taken place. First of all, through Jesus turning the worst of sinners, people like Saul, and even people like us. And secondly, Jesus sending out the worst of sinners to turn others like him. Now, we might ask, what do we do with that information uh, this morning? Well, I think three things off the back of this. First of all, confidence. It gives us confidence, isn't it? That Jesus hasn't just sent us out alone to do this work. He has given us the resources to do it. And so we can be hugely confident as we share the gospel. Not everyone might respond, but we know we're doing what Jesus has expected his church to do. Secondly, I think a desire. It's hard, isn't it, to, to not read Saul's conversion and just to find joy in it. I mean, it's great, isn't it, reading how he persecuted the church and that wonderful, warm word, brother. Um, it's so wonderful, isn't it, to see that work taking place in others. And this should remind us that Jesus is in the business of doing that now and today. So we of course, want that same desire. Confidence, desire, and thirdly, tools. It is not our strength. It is not our ability to form an argument or persuade people or arm twist. It is Jesus' work. But he has given us the very tools to do that in the Apostle Paul and his work. Let's pray. Go, for he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings 
and before the people of Israel. We thank you, our Lord Jesus, that you have not left us alone, but have given us the work of the Apostle Paul. And so we pray that you would give us as a church and as Christian believers great confidence as we share in his work to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We need your Spirit's help in that work. Amen.